Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. Jet Noir is back, still from the session we recorded on day 27 of his isolation during the COVID-19 crisis. Jet comes to us from his studio, where we talk about racial fetishization. I swear I will learn to say that word quickly one day. We talk about dating going to conventions as teachers, and other stuff in how it relates to race. As a former fitness coach, Jet has some experience as what he calls a body image coach. We talk a bit about tea to ease into the conversation, as well as how we met each other before diving into the topic. I mentioned the book Love Is Not Colorblind, written by Kevin Patterson. Um, It's about non-monogamy as experienced by a person of color. I think that book's useful not just for folks wanting to not just for folks wanting to be more responsible citizens, if you will, in how they date in non-monogamy, but also for any folks wanting to see more representation by marginalized communities, specifically people of color, in a space that seems mostly white. For example, Greater Vancouver is about 50% white, and a lot of alternative communities are about 95% white. That's something that if you are seeing something similar in your own community, you might want to read that book and start looking out for instances of racism or other other sort of subversive issues or subtextual issues that maybe you weren't seeing before. Just a thought. Anyways, let's hear it from Jet himself on Intimate Interactions. It's funny how um, you can have so little to do in the day and feel like you got so little done and just feel so not energetic to do much. Something that I've been unlearning because of the pandemic is I've been unlearning the capitalist prompt of productivity where there's this sort of unspoken shame around how much did I get done today mm-hmm. as opposed to a celebration of I didn't do shit today because the fucking world is crazy right now and that's okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. I currently have this really nice um, Genmai Cha. It's like a Japanese green roasted rice tea. And there's something so calming about how like earthy and grainy and like wholesome it tastes to me. I just really enjoy it. So here's a fun fact. Okay. Um, I used to be a tea nerd because I used to manage a tea shop. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. There is, um, before Starbucks brought them out or bought them out, um, Tivana was a standalone store in various malls across the country. And I used to manage their Las Vegas location. 
That's so cool. So yeah, I, I, I used to sell again matcha and I loved it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of tea. Um, I'm sure you know a lot more than I do seeing as you ran a store. Currently, the favorites I'm drinking are I have a Dahong Pao black Chinese tea, which is like one of the Wuyi rock teas that I like. There's like a few a few Chinese black rock teas that I like, but the the Dahong Pao is like my everyday drinking tea. And then I have like a couple of of teas that are pricier that are that I have less of that are like fancy. And if someone's like, oh, I want to taste what the difference is between like a rock tea and like a regular black tea, I'll probably make them like a, I have like Sheng Pu'er tea as well, which is like a different kind of Chinese black tea. And I'll make them like that. I'll make them like more of a traditional um, like Ceylon, um, r- like orange pico style black tea. And then I'll do like a, a Wuyi rock tea of some kind and I'll do a couple of them and then we'll like taste all of them. And they're just so radically different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I, I have so much fun with tea stuff and introducing people to teas. But yeah, those are probably two of my favorites right now is the Da Hong Pao and the, and the Sheng Pu'er that I'm drinking. We used to do a lot of mixes because we could make, um, we had all the loose teas behind us and we either sold them, you know, loose in bags for people to take home or we would sell them a cup, powder iced. And um, people would, so we'd like to do mixtures where there was like a Pu'er mixed with like a lemon verbena or something, and um, and we would sort of bill it as okay. You want something that has sort of a refreshing summer taste that you know that we can serve iced, but you also want the, the diuretic components of a lot of tea. Then here you yep. go. Yep, totally. Actually, it's occurring to me now that I think a sheng pu'er is the green version and a shu pu'er is the fermented version. But I don't know if you still call it a sheng pu'er if it oxidizes naturally. Because there's like there are two different ways that you get like a shu pu'er, like a, a black version of the pu'er tea. Yep. Um, it either oxidizes over time or you put it through a fermentation process that involves some sort of fungus. The really neat thing is um, if it goes through the fermentation process even with like a master tea person that's stirring it with a giant wooden um, stir stick. I don't know what that's called or (laughs) what shape it is even. Um, All I know is that sometimes there are bits and pieces that don't get broken up. And because of how hot fermentation gets, the tea leaves will actually fuse together with some of the fungal protein. And you can't, you can't get that stuff um, to like break apart easily. So they'll sell it as like, kind of the equivalent of like off cuts and you get these like really rich mushroomy black teas that are that way because they were literally fermented with a fungus that didn't uh that didn't get like extracted um that didn't get extracted so you end up with these like super mushroomy black teas it's really cool they're really rich tasting but enough about tea I could, I swear I could talk about tea all day. It's either learning or sharing. I just like, I have such a fascination with like that idea of sitting down with a really hot, flavorful cup of tea and just kind of like relaxing. And it's almost like the tea gives you an excuse to not have to be doing anything or thinking about anything. Yeah. Tea time is peaceful like that. Mm -hmm. That actually kind of dovetails really well into the idea of COVID-19. Do you want to start the session? Yeah. All right. So I welcome everyone to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with Jet Noir. 
Jet is one of my fantastic friends who, where did we actually originally meet? Did we meet at ConvergeCon? Is that where we met? We did. We met at ConvergeCon 2019. That's right. We were both, we were both presenters at ConvergeCon 2019. It was online this year. Um, did you, did you participate in ConvergeCon 2020? I did. Um, ConvergeCon line was, uh, right. it was interesting. It really was because as a, as a speaker, I am so accustomed to immediate interaction and feedback. Mm. You, you make a joke in a room full of people, then you could feel right away, did it land or not? You know, being able to make and hold eye contact so that your your words are, are engaging. Right. Or if they're not engaging, you can immediately know, like, oh, I'm seeing a few eyes glaze over, so let me sort of change things up a bit, that sort of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually brings me to a question that I meant to ask that isn't sort of in any any list of sort of talking points we have, but I was curious to talk about um, the talk you gave at ConvergeCon line about racial fetishization. It's just, it's such a, I don't want to say fun topic to talk about, but it's something I feel very strongly about. <laughs> so I'd be super interested to hear you chat more about that. Yeah. <laughs> fun is definitely not the word, but... <laughs> um, uh, well, I, I'd like to talk about like where that lecture, where I felt the need of that lecture came from. Oof. Um, yeah. Get into it. Because it came from a couple places. Number one, when I presented at ConvergeCon in 2019, I was so happy that I decided to fly to Vancouver and, and, and talk about various things because I was the only person in various rooms that looked like me. Right. You know, I just I just didn't see any other black masculine representation. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I felt like there were a lot of perspectives that just that just weren't being heard when it came to various topics. And so mm -hmm. sometimes I'll feel the same way at a, a play party or any sort of sexually charged space. And so I will feel the need to point out to people like, hey, that thing that you're doing, not okay. And I understand you may think it's okay because you probably don't have any black friends. And so, <laughs> uh, I can often tell when someone is, when someone has sort of been raised with these racist ideals, mm -hmm. is someone who is just blissfully ignorant because again, I can tell they don't have any black friends. Right. And either way, I thought I felt it was important to just kind of give a history lesson as to, okay, well, let's look at how different races are portrayed in the media so that we can have an understanding as to uh, how our, our, our attitudes have been shaped over the years. Mm -hmm. And no, it is not simple as you just have a preference. It's not. Oh, my God. Yeah, that that's. Definitely not my favorite um, objection to this conversation, that whole idea of like, well, I just have a preference is like, uh -huh, and what, uh, what informed that preference? That's right. a very interesting question. Yeah, because if, it's, if it were as simple as just a preference, uh, you know, then, then you, could, you could change a preference. It's like one day you enjoy 
uh, orange juice and then you start liking apple juice. That, that, those are preferences, right? But if we're talking about interacting with human beings, if you people say it's a preference so that they it's almost like they're putting up this defense against potential unpacking. Yeah, they don't want to think about why. Right. They, they don't want to dive in deep as to, uh, okay, well, let's talk about, you know, the very first person you found attractive when you were, you know, going through puberty, the first person you found sexually attractive, you know, the first person that, you know, you, you had a romantic interest in. Uh, but then let's also look at movies and books and music and, and who the world has told you is attractive yeah and how that informed your quote-unquote preference mm-hmm. so so that's that's where the lecture came from was i was like okay well, let's go down the history lesson of what the media has, has told us is attractive mm-hmm. for so and many to... years and 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 how it has shaped our, our not only not only our dating but also what we do in these play party environments where it's like, oh, this person just walked in the room and, uh, you know, this person may be like an Asian woman or a black man or, you know, uh, a, a less next person or what have you. And because of that, they're like, they make, they flock towards them and then they're just like trying to get at them in some way, whether it's just a conversation where they want to have sex with them or whatever. And it's like, well, well, why? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's one of those weird It's one of those weird, the knife cuts both ways situations where it's like, y- you get people that are going to, you know, revile you or, or, or much more commonly these days, just dislike you. Right. They'll just say, Oh, you know, like, for example, being um, uh, a, an Indian man, I guess, is the easiest way to sort of package that identity because I'm an, I'm an Indo-Canadian second and fourth generation, depending on which side. Um, and the, the Indian specifically I'm talking about is a Tamilian, which is from the deep south of India. It's right near the tip. Um, and it is the darkest Indians that there are. Um, you know, like I show people pics of my, of my grandfather or my mom and they just like, are like, wow, like I never would have, uh, never would have thought that. And it's like, well, I don't think it's about thinking it, you know, like I I wouldn't expect people to look at me and think what my ethnic background is. Like, that's not something I would just expect from folks, but it's like, fuck, it cuts both ways. Cause you get people being like, oh yeah. I mean, as a, as a general stereotype, there's all this, like, um, there's all this, like, well, just straight up racism. That's just like Asian men are this or that, or are not attractive or are not high status. However you want to frame it. Humans are so big in their social status turn-ons. Like the idea of attractiveness has like on some level, probably some environmental fitness, evolutionary fitness stuff. But I mean, that's minuscule compared to the risk that making the wrong choice will make you a social outcast and that you will not reproduce at all. Right. Right. People are terrified of doing something that will be socially unpopular or that will um, that will reduce their status in society. Like we we think about our our relation. When I say fitness, of course, I mean in an evolutionary sense. We think about like, and this is because this is the problem with having a degree in a thing. <laughs> um, but basically, like we tend to think about attractiveness in our relationships as being like 
not just physically the best outcome for our kids, but also like, what would the best social outcome be? And if you live in a society that's deeply racist, as I would argue both Canada and the US are, sure. um, which, is, which is something a lot of Canadians wouldn't think of, but it's just different. It just looks different, but it's, it's not that different. You know, like there's a lot of really subversive, like shitty subtextual, I think is the word I was looking for, racism that happens here. And it's like, when you're in a big city, sure, you won't probably notice it in Canada, not much. And the same could probably be said, even of a state like Texas, possibly, if you look at Houston or like Austin, and you look at the more like, um, you know, densely urban populated centers, yeah, you're probably looking at a lot less like overt stuff. But as soon as you get out to the countryside in Canada, it's not that different. It's really not that different. So there's that. There's all the negative stuff. And then there's the fetishization, which is like the flip side, which is like, I, and usually it's because, not always, but usually it's because a person has a fetish for something that's either unobtainable. So there's this colonial idea of like, ooh, exotic, which is just like, makes me grossed out just to say the word. Yeah. Um, and, and as a result, the word exotic has kind of become like a flag word when I hear people using it carelessly. It's usually like a, a red flag. I'm like, oh, this person is probably not as like informed as they could be. And they may not be a safe person for me to date or play with. Right. And like, I think a lot of POCs like do that where we have these like flag words, or even if we don't think of them like that, there's just like this subconscious feeling you get when a person starts using certain language carelessly. You're like, ooh, all my spidey senses are going off. I don't know about this person. I don't feel safe with this person. Yeah. One of, one of the, um, there's a phrase that is immediately a flag for me that I, I don't want to be involved with this person in, in any way, not even platonically. And that is, um, I don't see color. Oh yeah. Fuck that noise. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. You, you go on with whatever's going on. Cause my thing is I am happy to have a conversation with them around, you know, uh, how problematic that is and why that's a flag for me and other people of color but I'm not going to impose that on them. I'm, I may offer it like, hey, I'd love to have a conversation with you around that if it's something you're open to hearing. But I'm mm -hmm. not going to, you know, beat someone over the head and say, hey, you must hear this message about why that's problematic. Right. Uh, instead, I'm just going to recognize, oh, you're, you're not a safe person for me to be around and I'm out. Now, for, yep. those, for those people listening to the podcast right now, I want to expand on why that's, that's a safety issue. Uh, it's, yep. I'm, I'm a very, very pragmatic, literal person. So when I hear people talk about safe or unsafe, then I immediately think, well, I'm like, well, is there an actual threat to your well-being? Well, yeah, there kind of is. Because when someone says, I don't see color, I don't see race, what I hear is uh, race or color are not, are not important to them. They don't have to worry about it. They live a life of privilege. And because of that, they can afford to look the other way and ignore not only uh, the fact that I'm black, but what is happening to black people in the world. You know, right. uh, you know, because I don't want to necessarily pick on the United States and Canada. Instead, I want to look at the world at large and let's question why is it that the darker skinned individuals around the world, even if they don't identify as black people, why they catch the most hell, mm -hmm. you know, and, and if you, if you don't see color, if you don't see my color, 
you don't see me, you don't see my experience, you don't see the shit that I deal with on a regular basis. And if you don't mm-hmm. see it, then, then that gives you a pass. You don't have to stand up for it. You don't have to defend it in any way because you don't see it. So, yeah. so it's, like, it's like telling someone, hey, I know you deal with a bunch of bullshit out here in the world, but I don't see that. I'm just going to look over here. And that, that is a clear threat to my safety. That is, that is you saying that if I here, – here's a story about that. I was, I was dating a woman and um, I was dating a white woman. And we mm-hmm. in a situation where uh, she was a uh, fashion show producer. She's producing a fashion show at this country club resort situation. And mm-hmm. everyone there was white. And her photographer bailed on her at the last minute. She said, hey, can you do me a favor and just snap some pictures? They don't have to be great. Just snap so I have, you know, I can, you know, show what work I did. I was like, yeah, sure. So I get there and I was like, all right, well, while you're working with the models in this room, I'm going to scout around some good places to, you know, set up and get some shots. Mm-hmm. So here I was walking around unattended and um, immediately the host like is on me and she was asking, who are you here with? And that's a very clear, very specific question. Not yeah. who are you? Not you know, let's talk about your autonomy as an individual human being. No, who are you here with? Right. And so I was, I explained my situation, why I was there, why I was scouting around. And, um, then she went off and came back with a head of security. And really, she said, I'm sorry, we just can't figure out who you're here with. And at that point, I was pissed, and I was just like, and I went and I got my partner at the time, and I I said, hey, can you talk to these people about what's going on? And she explained that everything was cool, um, and or or they thought everything was cool. They tried to like shake my hand, you know, keep it moving. Uh, but I was still visibly annoyed, and the reason I knew that my partner and I had to break up was because her response to this whole thing was, oh, you're making a big deal out of nothing. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I would be pretty upset about it. Yep. And, and, and that's an example of someone not seeing color. Yeah. They don't see the, the, yeah, they don't see the issues. They don't see the struggle. They don't see the ways that racism is still alive in society. It's, it's really hard when someone doesn't want to see the struggle because it feels willful when someone says, I don't see color. Yeah. Yep. I hear you loud and clear on that one. Um, so circling back, I was, um, I was talking about all the negative ways that, that racism sort of happens. And that's a perfect example of that. But then racial fetishes, fetishization is the flip side of that. When people want to almost reduce you to a racial stereotype or a caricature of your heritage, it's sometimes that stereotype or caricature is, is so incredibly offensive on its own. But in addition, it comes back to that idea of even if I am like the living stereotype of, you know, an Indo-Canadian man, which I, which I don't think I am, um, not least of which because I don't identify as a man, I identify as a um, gender non-binary person. But um, even, even that 
in the context of, of Indian culture, which is typically pretty conservative, especially in the South. Um, yeah, it's like, even if, even if I were that stereotype, if you just reduced me to a set of, a set of practices, you're still not seeing who I am as a person, like how often someone vacuums or the kind of food that they eat or the, the kinds of culture they, they have engaged with in the past that maybe informs their present, but it still doesn't answer the question of like who they are now and like who they are as a person independent of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And that's even if you subscribe to the caricature in the first place and it isn't really offensive on its own. So I would say that that whole idea of like, of like, Oh, it's super hot that, that you're Brown or that you're this or that is just like, uh, maybe consider why you think it's super hot for a person to be of a certain race and like the assumptions and stereotypes that comes that come with that. And usually my, in my experience, those assumptions have typically been very degrading ones. Like a person has a degradation fetish and they value black or brown people as, as so secondary and so um, almost dirty and like again a super racist and offensive way and that's what's sexy or hot about it for them and that's just like i am not here for that not going to police it but like you do your race play with folks who want to do race play that is not me uh, like you go do that with someone else who's cool with it because i am not not for me yeah and that's that's actually something that i addressed in the lecture about how i was like okay well just to play devil's advocate with myself someone may be asking well, mm -hmm. if the racial fetishization is consensual. Yeah. And, and I, I offered, I'm like, okay, if, if it is consensual, that doesn't change the fact that you're doing harm. And, Ooh. and, and it doesn't, um, and furthermore, if it is consensual, you still very much should not do it in a public setting, like at a play party. Because yes, it may be consensual for you two, but anyone who may overhear or witness, it is going to do, we don't even want to talk about the potential harm it could create the ripple effects in right. that environment because the people witnessing or hearing that, they, they don't, they didn't have context. Right. And not only could it do a lot of harm to um, minority folks that potentially in unintentionally see that content, especially if it's like race play in a BDSM sense. Um, but there's also all the other folks that might be like, Oh, it's okay to behave like this. This is, this is an okay thing to play with. And right. it's like, there are like 11 asterisks on, the, <laughs> on right. the end of that. It's like, yes, it's totally fine to do race play asterisk, 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 like, please see the, the three pages written on the, on the reverse and it, and stapled and close, um, close pinned, um, paper clipped to this, to this document. Like it's, there, there are a lot of things, I think, a lot of boxes that need to be checked and a lot of things you need to do to, in, in my mind, again, this is, this is, I'm trying my very best not to be judgmental about this. Cause like you said, I'm sure there are some folks that will consent to this, but you know, and maybe this is me just being really judgmental and I super apologize for people of color um, listening who maybe are into race play because that is a, it is, it is a potentially in the way that I see a lot of kinks, something that in vanilla society may be considered harmful may not be harmful if you're playing with it in a really informed way especially in a really informed consensual way having said that 
the whole public setting is its own discussion and it gets super gray because in BDSM settings, the idea of the dungeon is it's this sacred place where you can do virtually anything. Like there are things, obviously those things have to be consensual and informed, but there is this controversy um, in the BDSM scene that I think has sort of been coming and going in waves around like, is race play ever okay in a public setting? And there are some folks of color that will say it is and some that will say it's not. For me personally, I haven't been forced to grapple too hard with that question because Indian slavery is not something that gets talked about a lot in Canada. In Canada, the closest thing we ever had was Indian coolies, um, to use a word that is highly racialized that you should be extremely careful about using um, if you are not Indian or Chinese or familiar with the history of the word coolie. Um, it is so offensive to some folks that in South Africa, for example, that word is included on a list of hate speech with a certain K word, which I will not say because it's equivalent to a certain N word that you're more familiar with here. But we had a sense of like debt slavery. I believe it was called indentured labor. And it is, in my opinion, absolutely a subset of slavery. Um, and that's and that's more modern that has happened within Canada and the US. So that's not even talking about actual slavery that Indians were unfortunately part of, um, but specifically talking about indenturement. I've never had to deal with that in Canada. People don't know that history. People here don't really talk about that history all that much. It's like, there's a reason when you think of the Caribbean that there is like Afro-Caribbean and Indo-Caribbean, and they're two really big um, demographics represented there. And it's for the same reason, folks, yeah. or for very, very similar reasons. And they're not fun ones. So what I would say is I've been very fortunate to not have to give this a lot of thought, but I totally respect your position that it's never okay in your mind for those scenes to be public. Yeah. And um, so something else that happens is sort of subtle. This I don't know if I would call it racial fetishization, but mm -hmm. it it feels driven by race. And, and, and what the experience is, is uh, narration. Narration is something that comes up when I found this happen when I am kissing someone, in, like kissing a partner or something in public, mm -hmm. or if I'm having sex with someone in um in a play party or something like that. And there are these sort of drive-by narrations where someone may be walking past our scene and they mm -hmm. feel the, the entitlement to openly, loudly broadcast their commentary on what we are doing in the moment. Wow. And, and, and what I find uh, frustrating about that is, number one, 100% of the times it, it has happened, it has been a white person, 100% of the time. And, and it feels like this sense of entitlement over uh, my station, right? As, as if to say that, oh, well, you, you, you can do that. You can comment on you know, me and what I'm doing as if I'm this spectacle. And, it, and it, doesn't, it doesn't feel good. It's like, okay, number one, shut up. Number two, you are making yourself a part of our scene by doing that. Right. You know, so also stop. And then... In addition to all of that, it um, it just feels intrusive and rude. I mean, you know, I, I don't see them doing that to other white people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and 
I, I don't know whether when you say scene, you mean specifically like a BDSM scene. Are you, do you self-identify as a kinkster? I do. And so when I say scene, you know, maybe it's BDSM, maybe it's just, you know, maybe it's just a, a, a scene at a play party that's not necessarily kinky, it's just sex, but still it's something, Got something it. you know. Because like the cultural ideas around what's acceptable to say are so different, I find, in those communities. Like in BDSM, like talking around a scene is, I think, just about always rude unless you've been specifically invited and you're a part of the scene. Yeah, and I think in, in BDSM scenes, it, it's especially rude because there's this danger element where you do not want to disrupt the concentration of the person involved mm -hmm. because somebody could get hurt if their concentration is broken depending on the scene yeah and even emotionally if you're doing some really deep intense psychological play if someone else says something it can really break the immersion and it can really potentially fuck with someone when they're in a very vulnerable emotional place that can require days of aftercare potentially yeah um, on the other hand, I've been invited to participate in scenes where I was supposed to be sitting in a chair next to the scene, looking at it. Can't remember whether it was judgily, but I feel like I was supposed to be remarking how embarrassing and things like um, th just essentially like uh, my disapproval, like that was part of the scene. So I had sort of been stationed near the scene in a chair and, and the top was going to sort of signal me for these comments. And it actually ended up being a really fun scene. Yeah, and, and, and stuff like that can be fun because you're invited into the scene. Right. Uh, the, you know, the idea of, like, someone else just walking by and saying any of the things that you were asked to say. Right. It's, it changes that, the dynamic entirely. It's like, wow, rude. Yeah, it's, it's deeply upsetting. I think a lot of folks that struggle to understand consent in BDSM understand it a lot better in a sexual context. It's like sex can be incredibly emotionally uplifting, fulfilling, connecting. Um, it can be this, this beautiful celebration of, of sensuality with a person, or it can be rape. And like the, the only thing that, that separates those two enormously different outcomes I mean, you can boil it down to consent. It's it's a little bit more, but not that much. Like one of the major, 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 major defining factors is just did the person want this really intense, vulnerable experience or not? Right. When you start applying that to BDSM, folks, they're like, oh, I would I would never want someone to do a decorative cutting on my skin. It's like, yeah, that would be a horrible experience for you because you're not consenting to it. But for someone consenting to it, they might be like, this was deeply vulnerable. It was deeply enriching and rewarding. And, you know, it's it's a part of my life now. It, it symbolizes like who I was in that moment. And it represents these things to me. And it was an important part of, of me growing and changing and being who I am today. Two very different answers. Yeah. It's just consent. So yeah, fetishization, it's very complicated. And if you're going to do it, please do it with extreme care and consent. So wow, we, we managed to do nearly an entire episode just on racial fetishization, which I, which I figured might happen. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, it's funny. It's like you ask you ask folks of color to just like talk about racism, and yeah, there, there's never a lack of stories. There's never a lack of like, well, this one time. 
it's just a question of like how depressed do i want to be 10 minutes from now right, <laughs> like which right. stories do i want to share uh there was one time uh i don't even remember what the prompt was but there was some tweet that i wrote and someone mm -hmm. you know tried to engage me in this discussion about it but um they were they were coming at me with this sort of they were asking a question, but it was in this, and, and, and I'm sorry, I don't remember like the exact what I said or what they said. I just know that the question they were asking was, uh, it was combative, mm. you know, and I, and I was just typing something about my experience as a black person. Mm -hmm. And so when any response to me telling about my lived experience comes off as like this combative question, then I immediately don't want anything to do with it because I'm not here to debate my lived experience. And right. so, so I, I blocked the person and just to give you an idea as to how, you know, how mental some people can be, um, he or they tracked me down on Facebook and sent me a message there and, and said, oh, you block people who try to have a civilized debate about race. And when they said that, I, I immediately knew that person was white. And I knew that because no person of color ever wants to have a debate about race. Because any person yep. of color understands that their lived experience is not up for debate. Yeah. And, and so, so I just block a person on Facebook too, because I, was I wasn't going to engage with that because, you know, um, this goes back to what we were talking about with flags, you know, mm -hmm. I, um, red flag, yellow flag, however you want to call it. I, race is not up for debate. Yeah. If you've never experienced what it's like to be a person of color in this world where where there are systems in place to uh, to, to challenge your, you know, your day to day life, then, mm -hmm. no, I don't want to have a conversation with you about race because you've not experienced what it's like to be to be a race. Yeah. Yeah, it's something a lot of white folks um, struggle with is typically when we say the word race, we mean like marginalized or non-dominant. Um, and we, we usually mean like identifiable as, whereas there are, I mean, we don't need to get into the thick and thin of it because it's a whole other podcast trying to, trying to discuss whether or not whiteness is even a race, even though it is like a, a cultural amalgamation of things. Well, well, I addressed this in my lecture. I talked about, I talked about the, you know, the, the definition of, um, of, of race and, um, and how that determines whether um, there, I, I hear every now and again, I'll hear a white person say something about how they have experienced racism and, yeah. and I'm like, yeah, you have not. And, and of course they always want to argue against that, but of course, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, is that uh, race is definitely a social construct, but it's socially constructed category of identification based on physical characteristics, ancestry, historical affiliation, shared culture, things like that. So that's not to say that white is not a race, but when we talk about racism, yeah, that's a that's a a, a belief or a doctrine that's uh, that inherent differences among various uh, human racial groups determine their cultural or individual achievement, and and when there are policies or systems of government based upon uh, such a doctrine, then that's when we can clearly see that there are no 
policies or system of government that that lend to the idea of of white being inferior to any other race. And mm-hmm. so since that is not a thing, yes, it's possible for white people to experience prejudice, but not racism. Yeah, I, I run into this. <clears throat> I run into this idea of jargon that folks don't understand. I, I ran into it in sciences a lot when you would use words like prove um, or you would use words like theory. Like if you're using it in a scientific context, the word theory is incredibly difficult to achieve. Um, right. Whereas colloquially, people will say crap like, oh, I have this theory that. And it's like, really, you've got you know decades of experimentation and, and grueling attempts to disprove what you're saying. And through all of that, you triumphed. And this just a theory that you have is actually the very finest example of human knowledge. I'm like, I mean, if you if you define finest as the most resilience, the most resilient to the scrutiny of the world's most intense skeptics that may academically or in terms of career pursuit loathe the fact that you're taking the spotlight and do everything in their highly educated power to disprove you and discredit you like that's that's a theory like it really stands up to scrutiny like to a ludicrous extent or it's just a casual thought you're having the same sort of the same sort of example is what I would use when, when folks talk about racism. There's like this colloquial white definition, which is like, oh, racism has to do with discrimination based on the color of skin. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And then there's like ca- what I often call capital R racism, which is more of like the academic jargon when, when people of color talk about racism. They're usually talking about that systematized um, or institutionalized form of, of discrimination that is is based on racial group and often royally screws a group or groups of people and it is it is in every it has been in every case that i can think of that there is a that the dominant group of people typically white folks but not necessarily always in all contexts but in north american contexts it is in every case i can think of always a white person um, or white group of people that has sort of created institutions that marginalize, discriminate against, or otherwise oppress or fuck over groups of people. And unless you can talk about it in that systematized or institutionalized way, yeah, you're just talking about bigotry, prejudice, you're talking about discrimination based on skin color. If you really, really, really must use the word racism, at lowercase r racism, sure, but you're not. we're not saying the same thing when I say, oh, there's racism that people of color experience going to BDSM parties versus there's like, oh, people who are frustrated that white folks won't stop saying dumb shit. <laughs> It's like they're me me take, having a gripe about the way white folks interact with people of color isn't racist is what I'm saying. Right, right. It's just I'm just fucking tired of your shit. <laughs> yeah, and in in fairness to those, and and again, this is me being devil's advocate in places I really don't need to. Um, but in fairness to those folks, like sure, it it may not always be white folks doing it, but at the end of the day, when everyone goes home from the party if it was another person of color that said dumb shit to me, I can really console myself by being like, well, maybe they aren't quite there yet on their journey, but like they're going to live with the same types of prejudice or similar types of shit that I have. They maybe just haven't gotten theirs yet, or they're so internally racist. They've internalized so much racism as a result of all of the racism in society and racism that's been forced down their throat that they don't even see it that way anymore and like to me 
that isn't something I'm going to be really angry at them about. Whereas like, if a white person's like, you're an idiot, there's no problem. Why are you going and starting, you know, people of color groups and people of color parties? It's all racist and it's, it's um, segregation. That's the very best one. People talking about caucus spaces for POCs as segregation. It's like, you have no idea what that word means or what the historical context is. And right. if you do, then maybe you just have no idea what the lived experience of POCs are. Yeah, and I always ask the same thing whenever whenever I hear white people talking about any form of exclusion. And what, what mm-hmm. about them being excluded from spaces or you mm-hmm. know, them, you know, yet again, bringing up the question, why can't I say the N-word? Uh, oh, I always have the same response. I'm like, why is it so important to you that you have access to this space or access to right. that word? Why is How's it, so- it serving you? You know, and, 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 and if you... And and if you can't unpack for yourself why it's so important that you have that access, let me just state it for you quite simply. Your privilege is showing when the no you hear is the thing you fight against the most, as opposed to basking in all of the yeses that you hear. Yeah, or understanding all the implicit no's. For example... When you came to ConvergeCon, when you saw Vancouver, what percentage of the city would you say is probably non-white? I kind of only stayed in one area, but the area that I saw, I'd say maybe 5%. That's fair. And and that's true. You were only in, um, I guess you stayed near the convention center, right? Yeah, I was like a short bus ride away. Right, which I want to say is like Mount Pleasant slash north of Mount Pleasant. Um, so, yeah, it's a fairly white part of the city, in fairness. Um, a lot of the communities that we see, like even BDSM communities um, in Vancouver's downtown east side, um, I say that only because the parties are hosted. You know what? Actually, that's more East Van. Not important. Um, the long and short of it is the greater Vancouver area is about 50% white, but whenever you talk about alternative culture, a lot of alternative cultures are like about 95% white. That's what I would have estimated percentages at for, for cons that I tend to go to, be they, or even just meetups, be they non-monogamy meetups. Wow. Non-monogamy is a very white environment in Vancouver right now. Um, or, BDSM or burner circles, like any of these sort of alternative cultures that I sort of go to, they don't in any way duplicate the diversity I see in the city. And I get organizers asking me things like, well, well, how do we get people of color to come to our event? And it's like, well, to start with the event, it has to be anti-racist. It, it has to be friendly enough that people of color feel safe at your event and informed enough that white people don't say racist shit at that event, because if you can create a space that's like anti-racist enough that you can deal with um, what a lot of POCs um, not so lovingly call white nonsense, then you know you, you get a space where the POCs that come into the community that want to be the vanguard, they'll feel comfortable enough staying, waiting for other POCs to show up. Right. But otherwise, it's a revolving door. POCs come in, go, oh, this is kind of neat. I'll check this out. They hear a few straight comments and go, I don't see anyone that looks like me here to share my experience about what a shitty comment that was. So I'm just going to leave because this is not a space for me. Yeah. Not, and not only that, but it's 
going back to what you were saying about POC exclusive spaces, I run uh, or I co-host a uh, POC exclusive party here in the Bay Area. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, there's been pushback where some people are like, oh, but I have a white partner. Can they come? It's like, no, they can't. And and it's like uh, either you or your partner or both of you just kind of have to get over that shit. And the reason for the reason kind of we started it that was because or started the POC exclusive space was because of the same question where people are like, hey, how can we get more people of color at these events that are predominantly white spaces? Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, there are a lot of people of color that have never been to such an event because mm-hmm. they know or assume it to be a predominantly white space. And because of that, they're worried about, uh, you know, expo- literally and figuratively exposing themselves in front of people that they don't trust, yep. you know. And, and so, uh, you know, interge- intergenerational trauma is another podcast in and of itself. But it's it's the simplest way to explain why a lot of people of color don't trust white people even before they meet them. Yeah. And and so, you know, I'd encourage anyone listening to this who's not familiar with the 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 expression intergenerational trauma. Look it up. And so our idea was, okay, if we can get people of color accustomed to attending these events in what will feel like a safer space for them, then, you know, we sort of like, uh, uh, we, we crack the top of the creme brulee. Mm-hmm. And then it's like from here, let's, let's see what's underneath. And now, hopefully, ideally, uh, people who, who are experiencing their very first event as a POC exclusive event will then attend some of these other events. And they're like, oh, well, maybe this isn't as bad as I thought it would be because I'm used to being in this space now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, we we did the same sort of thing at Metro Vancouver Kink, the monthly dungeon parties. They used to be very cishet, and there was a group of queers that were like, why the hell is that? Let's just do like a queer swarm party where all the queers come out, and it's anyone's allowed in the space so long as they say, I self-identify as a queer. As long as you self-identify as a queer, you're welcome. And occasionally you get folks that are that are looking for um, like het relationships in that space, and it's sort of like... Well, good luck, but you're literally surrounded by queers and 99.9% of people are not looking for a het relationship in this space. No one's going to police it, but now you're having the experience of what most queer folks have, which is going to a space and being like, even though there are a lot of, you know, pansexual, bisexual, um, polysexual folks out there that are going to have multiple gender orientations they're attracted to, the default has flipped. And now the default is anything but the default. So you're in this really cool situation where even if people do show up and they don't, they don't show up in good faith as it were, there's such a small minority that no one really cares. Yeah. But it ended up increasing the number of queer folks that feel comfortable coming to MVK because we would literally post the dungeon party to be after this caucus space. I mean, it's not really a caucus space. I often, I use the word caucus space because for CKV, um, which is like, uh, it's, it's for kinksters of color in Vancouver. And it's, um, it is more of a caucus space. It's a discussion group. We talk about the issues in the community that exist and how, what initiatives we can sort of take to try and like help fix and steward the community in a way that's going to be a lot safer for everyone. Um, 
but yeah, so that that's why I'm very familiar with that term. But in the sense of these parties, how would you refer to um, parties that are only for folks of color? How would I refer to them as far as like the, the label? Uh, I would just call it POC exclusive. Is that, is that what you meant? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, an exclusive, a POC exclusive party, sure. Um, so we were thinking about starting one up in, um, in, in the same sort of format to try and encourage folks to sort of come out to more stuff. But by having these exclusive events sort of in anticipation of or like five hours before the, the dungeon party starts, we offer a huge discount for folks who want to stay to just check it out because we recognize they may have to deal with discrimination. And if they do, they don't want to feel like they wasted their money. So there's sort of like, they're already dressed up. They already came out. They already had a good party. Now it's a question of, do they want to stay around for the, like the pansexual party that includes all of the, the default world ish people, because they're not really default world for coming to a, a kink party, but more dominant identity folks. And a lot of people said yes to that. Like a lot of people were like, yeah, it's an extra five bucks. I'll hang out for an extra hour or two. And then over time started feeling safer and safer in that space and coming out to parties that don't have a queer swarm in front of them. We're hoping to do the same thing with um, folks of color as well. Yeah, that's a good idea. Kind of like doing the, the two part where it's like, okay, POC party to start. And then, uh, you know, there's an open to all party, but, you know, people kind of have the option of, hey, you've had your warm up, you can stay or you can, you know, maybe later on just attend the latter party or maybe you attend both. But it's kind of it, it gives more option, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the additional thing, too, is if a couple of people are like, yeah, I'd love to go and check out this this more default party, but they don't want to do it without their friends all of a sudden all their friends of whatever minority or marginalized group they're from are all with them at that party. And they can ask them like, Hey, do you want to stay for five bucks with me and just check it out? Just see what it's like. People that would usually not say yes to that request. Cause it's a lot of energy to think about <clears throat> how am I going to get dressed up for a pan party? Like how, how am I going to get dressed up for a, a dominant world sort of party? I don't even have clothes that are, you know, quote unquote, the right, whatever. Right. Um, or that I, I don't know, I'm not confident in my ability to code switch, to talk like they talk. So it, it sort of takes all of that anxiety out of it. And it's like, fuck it. I'm just going to go as me dressed up the way I am speaking the way I am. And if they don't like it, I'm just going to tell them to fuck off and leave. Cause I'm good with that. Yeah. You get to come from like a place of strength and you've got your friends with you and it just feels a little bit safer. Maybe. I had no idea you were a body image coach. Well, the, the reason that I say that is because I was, I was a fitness coach or personal trainer as, as you know, as, as the term used to be. Uh, and when I started, like in 2005, I always told people, I was like, hey, I'm here to show you how to work out. I'm not your trainer. You know, I don't, I don't give a shit about your feelings. I don't want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. But I found very quickly that it, no matter how many times I told people that, that's not really something you can turn off. And since our body tends to hold on to stress and trauma, when we start to release because we're in the middle of a good workout, then it's very common for people to start crying. Mm. And, and then what happens or what would happen is people would come up to me and they're like, oh, well, I have these goals. And I'm like, okay, but why? And I would never just take people's money because they're like, I want to lose weight. Okay, cool. I'll take your money. Let's go through a workout. I don't want to do that. Instead, mm -hmm. I'm going to teach you how to work out. I want to talk about why you're working out. I want to talk about the real reason you're working out. 
Because if you just want to lose weight because society told you to, we should unpack that. Yeah, that's fair. And so what all that turned into was, you know, 13 years of being a fitness coach, but in the process being a body image coach, because when people came to me and they said, I hate myself, help me change it. I'm like, no, you should either go to someone else or let's talk about how you're going to love yourself before we can get started. Hmm. That's really sweet. I really like that, that sentiment. We are getting close to um, the end of the podcast. Is there anything else you wanted to sort of chuck onto the heap, as it were? Because I know we could go on about this for quite a while. My, my hope is to take my racial fetishization lecture um, to more people through presenting it, you know, in future Zooms and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I do hope that I think I gave you my link tree. Uh, hopefully people can you know, check in there and, 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 and stay, stay in contact with me and what I'm doing so they can be aware of that when I announce it. Yeah. And in the meantime, I encourage folks to check out Love is Not Colorblind by Kevin Patterson, which talks a lot about non-monogamy and experiences of folks of color in non-monogamy, specifically um, his experiences. Yeah, that is a great book. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Jet. Thank you for having me, Victor. So how was it, Intimates? Did you love something you heard? Or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash interactions, or you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com, and I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw.